My name's Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us at Sojourn. Just want to remind you real quick, this uh, is on here for the number for you can text. We'll have a Q&A right after the service. So if you want to stay for that, and if you have questions throughout this, feel free to text them in during. We certainly don't plan to answer every question, and we do not have answers to all the questions. Uh, our goal is to be faithful and to exalt Christ as in every week. Uh, one of the movies that is quickly becoming a family favorite for us is the old movie, The Swiss Family Robinson. Perhaps you've seen this, where this family gets kind of marooned on an island together, and they have to prepare to live there, and then even to fend off some pirates who know they are there and want to come back for them. And in this movie, the father of the Robinson family says to them, as they know that the pirates might come back for them, he says to them, he says, let's be ready to fight, but not too proud to hide. So he's preparing for the pirates. They have all these little tricks that they're getting ready for them. But they're also not too proud to make sure they keep a low profile and hide should the pirates decide to pass over them. And Jesus' message to his disciples in Mark 13 has been a call for endurance, a call for standing, a call for, for standing firm in the midst of some things, and then also a call for fleeing, a call to get out. All of them by faith in Christ, but there's going to be a time when the way to persevere in tribulation is not to stay, but to instead flee. That's what Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 13 in our passage this morning. Now we're remembering that in Jesus, as he approaches this text that we have in front of us this morning, that he's answering a question that the disciples asked him in verse 4. They said, tell us when these things will be. Jesus said that the, the temple was going to be torn down, that there wasn't going to be one stone left that wasn't thrown down. And the disciples want to know when. When will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And his answer, at least in large part in this verse, in these uh, verses 14 through 23, is going to be in response and relate to that. And the main things we're reminded are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so Jesus' answer here, at least has a particular focus, a more limited focus to that question that the disciples asked about the temple. It relates primarily to those who were in Judea at the time and what they were to do and how they were to respond to the signs that were in front of them that they could have seen. I think one author helps us summarize this a little bit well in terms of what we're thinking about in the focus of these verses in front of us, verses 14 through 23. So Mark presents Jesus' words from a particularistic standpoint. In other words, he's describing them from the point of view of Judea and Jerusalem. So there's, that's evident in the text as we go through it. But that doesn't mean then that Jesus' words are limited to that. Of course, that's probably where all the questions are going to come from. <laughs> it doesn't mean that Jesus' words are limited to that and don't have some more universalistic, universalistic traits that apply to what this author says, a wider spatial and temporal area than the one within which the prophecy primarily applies. And so as we go through this, some of these elements in this passage certainly can be restricted. Not everybody is to flee all the time when you see a certain thing. Some of them could have wider meaning, wider application. Some of them certainly do have such. And it's not vital, I don't think, for us to sort out each one and which category. Does this, this only, or has this got possibly more, or does it have more? I don't think it's vital for us to sort them all out because the main things are the plain things. And we trust that God's Word is sufficient to describe for us what we need to know. 
And Jesus' words, and he meant for his words to be applied by his disciples. That's why there's so many imperatives through even this confusing text in, in this chapter of Mark. Mark meant for these words to be applied to his audience, that they could understand them as well and apply them to their lives. And then only after we go through those jumps that we did, how we then can apply it to our lives this morning. Now you'll see that verses 14 through 23 are linked to the first 13 verses that we covered in Mark 13 and the question of the destruction of the temple with, in these verses, probably Jesus' most direct answer to that question that they had in verse 4. You'll notice kind of the textual unity that we see in verse 7 and verse 11 and verse 14. He uses the same word, when, when, when. So it seems as if he's bringing these all together to bear. We said this last week. It's translated a few different ways, likely in your translation. But in verse 5, he says, beware. In verse 9, he says, beware. In 9 and 23, they translate them the same, says, be on your guard. So 5, 9, and 23 uses the same word, again, pointing to a a unity within this passage. They asked him in verse 4 about when will these things be, and it seems as if he kind of summarizes his answer with verse 23. He says, I have told you all things beforehand. And so it seems like we have a a textual unity, a, a continuation of what he's talked about in the first 13 verses, and yet there's a major change in the admonitions that Jesus gives. In verse 1 through 13, he gave a lot of, don't be anxious, don't be alarmed, beware, be prepared. Here he's going to give something different, and one author summarizes it well and says, until now the message has been, wait, do not be overwhelmed, endure, but now... The time for action has arrived. Before we had, in a sense, some non-signs of these are just beginnings of the birth pains, and now we're switching. Now they're to act. And why are they to act? Here's what Jesus says in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now the Abomination of of desolation points to, again, a particular event rather than a series of events as he was describing earlier with wars, rumors of wars, false messiahs, earthquakes, etc. And the appearance of that abomination of desolation is to lead his followers, his disciples, to action. So what is the abomination of desolation? Wouldn't you like to know? Let's just define it for a moment before we talk about more. One of the, probably the primary Greek lexicon just says this about it, that it's something that defiles a sacred place and causes it to be left desolate. One theologian says that it's uncleanness that corrupts or overturns the pure worship of God. So the abomination of desolation is not likely something that's completely unfamiliar to the disciples that Jesus is talking about. And probably not something too unfamiliar to Mark's original audience as well. Indeed, this phrase, the abomination of desolation, is used in the Old Testament primarily in Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 31, Daniel says this, that forces from him, from the abomination of desolation, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Or in chapter 12, verse 11, from the book of Daniel, this is where you actually have the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has a, the exact same phrase as Mark uses here for abomination of desolation. It says, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 
1,290 days. So this is from Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament. And Daniel's prophecy was a prophecy that was at least seen to be partially fulfilled. Daniel prophesied of a time after him. He was speaking of, of people that were in exile that had taken, been taken to, to Babylon, as Daniel was. And he's speaking of a, of a time to come. And here's what happened since that time. Uh, they were ruled and reigned by the Babylonians. And since that time, they had some other rulers that took over for them. You know, it's like kingdom trans went to a different kingdom and they started ruling. And then another kingdom started ruling. Well, Daniel is prophesying about a future kingdom that was going to rule, a, a Greek kingdom. And they came and they conquered uh, the promised land, the Jews in Jerusalem, and in 167 BC, there was a general who was to be the ruler of this place, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he came in to the Holy of Holies, and he, as they would describe it, fulfilled this prophecy, fulfilled the abomination of desolation by sacrificing swine on the altar that was used for the regular burnt offering. And so at least what we have from Daniel is we have some information, some kind of category that kind of helps, gives us an idea, helps us frame out, helps us have some sort of category to hang our hat on as to what the abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks about here in verse 14 is, what it might look like and how they might understand it as a sign that they could actually see that would lead to then their action. Perhaps that is why that they could have understood it, that they could have known it. Perhaps that's why Mark inserts his editorial comment here of let the reader understand. But admittedly, it's a very enigmatic phrase that we don't really know a lot about. Does it mean that the abomination of desolation would be like what Daniel saw, what he prophesied, and what was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes? So could the audience then have read this and, and seen that? Or some suggest that He's trying to clue them into even what he says. I mean, if you look at the words closely, verse 14, he says, when the abomination of desolation, that is a thing, right? It's written, the language is as of a thing. But you notice if you are using the translation that we are using, the ESV, it says, standing where he ought not to be. In other words, the Mark uses what we call a, a participle, masculine participle, right? So it's it's a verbal adjective, like you could say you're a working man, but the way they used it was they actually attached masculine, feminine, or neuter, neither, to these words, and he uses the masculine participle, so it makes sense that it's translated that standing where he ought not to be. So maybe that's what Mark is trying to clue his readers into. It's, it's a he, you know, you're thinking about the abomination, it's a, it's a he. Perhaps he's trying to do that. Or maybe Mark's audience primarily and likely outside of Judea, is to realize that the specifics of this coming sign are a little bit different application for them than they were to Jesus' original audience. All these are just possibilities, and indeed, uh, we're left with just mostly questions as to what one is actually there. But either way, Jesus is saying that the abomination of desolation was a sign that the destruction of Jerusalem, that the destruction of the temple was near, that it's coming, that it's close, so Jesus' words about a particular, but maybe not exclusive, but a particular at least event, was to apply to those in Judea, and it was pointing to a coming event that they could understand, they could see, an event that had some continuity with Daniel, that was recognizable to the Judeans, and that allowed them time for action because he's going to call them to action to flee. And likely, because of the masculine participle, refers to a person and not a thing. So there we go. I've defined it well for you. You have everything you need to know. 
as you can imagine, the proposals for what this is, the fulfillment of this, the abomination of desolation, are numerous. All right, one book that I looked to, he just, he just said, hey, here's eight. I'm like, just throwing them out there. Just ran, like, here's eight of them. You know, there could be many. I'll give you a few proposals that I think are helpful. The first was, you remember that the, the Romans were reigning and ruling at this time. There's some sort of a rebellion among the Jews in the promised land in Jerusalem and Judea in that area. And so the, the Romans are going to come stamp this out. Well, at one time there was this uh, uh, general Caligula. He comes and he it is said he wanted to erect a statue of himself in the temple, which of course would have been thought of as desecrating the temple for the Jews. But he never carried it out, but some people think that's what Jesus was talking about. So when he comes and he starts doing this, you need to get out. Some think that it was an attempt by Pontius Pilate to raise the Roman standards within the temple. Some think that it was Titus, and Titus was the one who came and actually carried out the destruction of the temple. And he enters in himself, and they're proclaiming him as the emperor, and he raises the Roman standards within the Holy of Holies. And if there was said to have been sacrifices in there at that time as well. So maybe that could have been it. The Roman soldiers, possibly as they set up the, the flags and pronounced Titus the emperor, perhaps they were the ones. So it's, it's not just Titus as this individual, but maybe the, the soldiers. Perhaps the destruction of the temple itself by the Roman army, which they did destroy, 70 AD. And then the last one is that the, maybe some zealots. This would be the, the Jewish zealots before the destruction of the temple. They took up and occupied the temple, including the Holy of Holies. They named a high priest. His name was Fanny. As far as I can tell, I don't know how else to pronounce his name, so he's called Fanny to me. And he was known at that time as a, he possibly had a mental disorder. He was known as a clown. Like, you look it up, and it's like, yeah, he, here's Fanny the clown. He was set up as the high priest in 67, 68 so a few years before the destruction of the temple. So, I mean, take your pick out of any of these possibilities. What I favor, I think, is actually the last one. The, the Jews had, as the zealots, they were fighting back and for a while actually had some control from Rome of the temple and of Jerusalem, and they were trying to fight back, and they set up this high priest, and they took residence up in the temple in the Holy of Holies. They had this high priest. You remember when Paul, when he comes in the book of Acts, and they, they get really upset, they're very religious Jews, get very upset that Paul enters, they think, the temple with a Greek. Think of what they would do and how they would act if, if they have this high priest who's not from the line of high priests. He's known as a clown and he takes up residence. I mean, they would have considered that. That could have been thought of as the abomination of desolation. And this sign, a few years before the destruction of the temple, could have given them time for fleeing before the, the surrounding and siege of Jerusalem took place. But no matter the actual abomination of desolation, seeing it apparently was no problem. Jesus expects them to not only hear his word, to be able to see it, what's going on, to see the abomination of desolation, and that they are to beware of these things, to be taking heed of what's going on around them, and that if they trust Jesus' word and are not led astray, then they're not alarmed, they're not anxious, they could see it and understand what's going on. So no matter what we think about what let the reader understand is, or who the individual of the abomination of desolation was... There's this expectation from Jesus, from Mark, that the readers would understand what's going on and be able to rightly apply it. And this understanding that readers are to have is not meant for knowledge alone. Again, Jesus is not trying to get his disciples to this place where they can write out a timeline and figure all the, the dates out and times out. He, he wants his 
people, his followers, his disciples, to hear his word and actually obey it. He wants faith in him, obedience to his word. He wants this knowledge to lead to action. And so again, Jesus shows his desires, his desire for present faith and present obedience, not just some sort of esoteric knowledge of the future. And so here's the action that he, he calls for in verse 14. Let those who are in Judea, again, it's, it's particular, right? Specific. Just those in Judea, here's what they're to do. Flee to the mountains. And let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Again, these instructions only make sense to those who could have seen the abomination of desolation, who were his disciples, and who were his disciples in Judea at the time. And so it does have a particularistic, maybe not exclusively, but it does have a particular particular audience and application. And the emphasis that Jesus puts on this is on urgency. When you see this, you, you need to take action. You see this, he mentions in a couple different examples to make sure that they know that this is an urgent situation. Perhaps he exaggerates the language even to convey the necessity of getting out of escape and, and being undeterred from your escape. You aren't to be like, like Lot and his family as they over and over again or have to be convinced that you need to get out now, that this city is about to be overturned. Jesus doesn't want anything like that from his followers. He says, when you see it, you've got to, you've got to make a beeline. You've got to get out of there. It needs to be urgent. You don't go, oh, well, I'm, I, mean, I might as well go ahead and plant the crops while I'm here or clean up that. No, like, get out. That's what he says. Flee. They're not to seek refuge in the walls. They've done that before in the past. The people of God, strong walls around Jerusalem. Let's go seek refuge there. They're not to be like Hezekiah. Remember when Hezekiah knows that the Assyrians are going to surround him? What does he do? He, he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he mourns and goes to the temple. Jesus doesn't say to do that. He doesn't say call for a prophet to figure out if this is actually the sign. He says, when you see this, you need to flee. Jesus wants his followers to be ready. That's why he repeats the command to beware, be on your guard, don't be alarmed. He wants them to endure, but he also knows that there's a time to flee, and he wants them to know when it's time to get out. Paul, he was willing at times to go to cities, proclaim the gospel, and be stoned if necessary for the sake of the gospel witness that he was bearing. But he was also one who was totally willing to be let down in a basket from a wall in secret. And one wasn't more noble than the other. He wasn't more courageous for being let down in a basket than he was for allowing himself to be stoned. There's a time to go and there's a time to stay. And Jesus says, there's a time for my disciples in Judea to flee. And the most important question for any disciple of Jesus about whether we should flee, whether we should stand firm, is, is what is the Lord commanded? What does Jesus tell us to do? Does he say to flee, then we flee? If he says go, we go. If he says stay, we, we stay. And if there's no direct command, we can remind ourselves from verse 11 that Jesus says, hey, I'm leaving my spirit with you. He'll guide you. He'll give you even things to say in your darkest hours. His spirit can be trusted to give what's needed. And so the command to flee makes Jesus' compassion for his people evident. It's also evident in the rest of his words through here. It's the enemy that comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is the one who came to, according to Mark 10, seek and save those who are lost. He wants to care for his sheep and make sure that they are cared for. And here's what he says to them, you need to flee. Because this time is going to be hard. Listen to his description in verse 17. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Verse 18, pray that it may not happen in winter. Children and and pregnancy are going to make fleeing even more difficult. And you're going to need to do it urgently. And we know how that can be hampered by those things. More obstacles are going to make it even harder out of an already difficult situation. Winter will make it harder. Colder. Or it's said that the streams would swell up, making travel difficult and crossing over to the mountains where they need to go more difficult than it was before. And so reaching safety from the destruction of all that was going to happen in Jerusalem and the temple wasn't going to be easy for anybody. And he says, especially so for the vulnerable, for those who have even more weight added on them. So being forced to flee is not a good thing because of the judgment that God is bringing at this time. But the severity of the situation dictates that that they need to flee and that those who stay, they actually have it worse. Listen to verse 19. It says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So Jesus wants to be clear and warn of, of horrific suffering that's coming. Great tribulation is upon them when you see this sign. And it's all surrounding the, the question of, of when will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple be? And says, Jesus says, there's, there's going to be a time when that's going to happen. He's already pronounced, and indeed this whole chapter is in this context of his judgment upon the temple. And he's going to pour this judgment out. And he warns of how horrific the suffering will be and how great the tribulation will be at that time. Indeed, we know that when the Romans came, they sieged Jerusalem. And they brought on great tribulation. Roman soldiers flooded the streets when they invaded. Their presence there, their war that they made on Jerusalem threatened the universal slaughter of the Jews at that time. Josephus is an early Jewish historian. He said that 97,000 were captive and over a million were killed. And indeed, much was burned and destroyed. It was so bad that we could say, as Jesus said, verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Indeed, it lines up with the description that almost there's threatened the, the universal slaughter. And God, in verse 20 though, as he consistently did throughout the Old Testament prophecies, promised to to save a remnant, to carry out his faithful word that says, I'm going to save a people. And he says here that a remnant will survive. Jesus says, the Lord cuts short these days, which I think is a really important phrase for us. That in the midst of great tribulation and horrific suffering, Jesus points out the lordship of God. That there's one who's in control and that he numbers the days. And if they, he wants to cut them short, he cuts them short because he's in control of those days. He's over all. Jesus presents God as the one over all of the events who's sovereign over every single event that takes place. It's not Rome who's dictating how things are happening, how long they happen. It's the Lord. It's not the world's powers. It's not an event that are dictating certain things that didn't just fall into place. It's the Lord who is sovereign. Believers need to be reminded of that. 
No matter what is going on in the world, there is never a time in history that our God is not in control. He is the Lord. There's never a time that world events or that the entire cosmos is outside of all of his plans and purposes that he has determined. There's not a time when history is off the rails of his plan. Everything is going according to God's plan, even during a time that Jesus could say has not been from the beginning of creation, we can affirm along with Jesus that our God reigns, that he is in control of all things. The clear testimony from the scripture, the the main things are the plain things, and the, the main thing throughout scripture from the beginning to the end is describing our God as Lord. The beginning he creates, throughout he sustains, and the end is God, the Alpha and the Omega, who fulfills all of his promises, whose kingdom triumphs over all of the kingdoms, who saves his people, and who's sitting on a throne. The main things are the plain things. That's plain. And that means, if that's true, then his people, no matter what time slot we fit into, no matter where we are on the great overarching history of all things, we can trust him. We can depend upon him. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be anxious. We can endure all things because our God reigns. And our God works all things for his purposes. A part of his purpose is to be merciful to his people. Verse 20 said, if they hadn't been cut short, no human being would be saved. But what does he say in the end? But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In in the midst of this context of of God pouring out judgment upon the temple and Jerusalem, what does God do? He shows mercy for the sake of his people. Perhaps it's even more mercy than we originally would think of because here are some people that are trapped within this siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that maybe didn't heed Jesus' warning to get out when they should have. And so they're in there. They didn't seem to obey and flee. God shows mercy. He makes provision for those who don't flee. He doesn't spare them from suffering, surely, as he never promises for any of his people, but he certainly spares them from annihilation entirely. And that God abounds in mercy is evident, especially in passages that speak of great suffering and judgment. His mercy is expressed, and it's expressed here in cutting short the days. It's also expressed prior to danger by warning. Verse 21, he says, if someone says to you, anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Are you right? Remember about Jesus. We saw this in Mark chapter 8, that Jesus was a little bit reluctant at times to perform signs. You remember in Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees come to him and they demand of him that he perform a sign for them. They come and they begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And what does Jesus do in response? Does he give them a great sign to show them once and for all, I'm the Lord and you should believe me? He sighs deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So he's somewhat reluctant. Why? Because signs aren't going to hold someone's actual faith. 
He wants to produce genuine faith. He doesn't want it built on signs and wonders and miracles. He wants it built on who he is and on what he's done. First Corinthians, Paul talks about this to the Corinthians. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But what does Paul give them? Christ crucified. The message of the cross Why? Because faith is rightly built on the person and work of Jesus. And so the invitation and the encouragement is from the scripture to believe in Jesus and not in certain signs, not in certain miracles, but Jesus himself. John, as he writes his gospel, actually talks about Jesus' miracles as signs. In other words, they're not the end. You don't stop there. You let them point you onward and who they point to. The uniqueness and the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so you were to see those and to believe in Jesus, not in those signs. And those who have faith that's not built on the person and work of Jesus can be led astray. Can be led astray by many things, but signs from anyone who comes and claims to be the Christ. Here, the command isn't to believe, but Jesus says, here's what you need to not believe. Don't believe them when they come and say these things, that here is the Christ. Don't believe this time. Especially during tumultuous times, we know this is true, that people are ready to rally behind something. That the the people are looking, they have heightened expectations, especially those who are vulnerable. They want to rally behind something that's powerful, that has signs and wonders. They're looking for something like that to occur. It's almost natural within us. And so it's possible that there's going to be several that are going to come and say, here's the Christ, and look at these signs and wonders that show That Jesus warns, as he warned in verses 5 and 6, and he reminds that many are going to be led astray. That there are going to be signs. There's going to be some wonders attached to these things. And people are going to claim that here is the Christ, or I am the Christ. Indeed, during the siege of Jerusalem, there were many such candidates who could have fulfilled this. And who actually rallied some people to their cause by claiming to be the Messiah who could lead them out of this mess. Jesus says, if those people come up, don't believe them. If you're in Judea and you see the abomination of desolation and people are coming and saying that they're the Christ, don't believe them. The claims, the signs, the wonders, they would have been convincing, so convincing that Jesus says this in verse 22. That if possible, it would lead astray even the elect. Now Mark doesn't give a discussion on on if this is actually possible or not. That's not his point. But his point is to say that that this is meant from Jesus to be a a loving and sobering warning to all of his disciples, all of his followers. The the kind of warning that sobers anyone up. The kind of warning that leads people who actually trust in Jesus and his word to to move closer to Jesus, to cling tighter to him, to not say, well, I guess it's not possible because that's what Mark says. It's not what he's trying to do. You're missing the point of what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to push you closer to him, to hold on more tightly to his words and to his promises, to sober us by this warning. We know that those who trust in Jesus, who listen to this warning, who move toward him need not fear. Remember the the image of John chapter 10 where Jesus is speaking about himself as the good shepherd. He says this in John chapter 10 verse 3. He says, to him, to this good shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. And the sheep, they hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him. For they don't know the voice of strangers. 
Notice in this imagery, the, in this picture, the, the intimacy between the shepherd and his sheep. How close they are. He calls his own. They know him and he knows them. It's a reciprocal relationship. He calls them by name. This is like, hey, you sheep out there. He, he calls them. He knows them by name. He goes before them. They see him in front of them. They can hear his voice and they know which one is his. And so the another voice, they don't follow. Like, nope, that's not right. That's not the shepherd. And so they follow him. The, the care then of the sheep is not dependent upon the strength and greatness of the sheep. But on the shepherd who knows the sheep well and who knows how to lead them and who knows how to call out to them and knows that they can recognize his voice. And so he makes sure that he calls out to them. The care of the sheep is not just dependent upon the sheep, but on the shepherd. And we know that Jesus is no half-hearted shepherd. I'm not going to leave us dangling. And as a good shepherd, here's what he does. He lovingly warns his followers. Don't believe someone who says, here's the Christ. Listen to the warning. Come closer to my voice. Follow even closer in obedience. Instead, here's what he says to them, verse 23. Be on your guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Again, I think Jesus shows us some textual unity with, with verses 1 through 13 by saying, be on your guard or beware. It's the same word he used in verse 5, the same word we saw in verse 9. He wraps up, he says, I've told you these things, all things, the, the things that they asked about in verse 4, there's textual unity there. And so it seems as he's responding, maybe the most direct response to their question about when will these things be, he gives in verses 14 through 23, and he com repeats his command, beware. Here's what we're to do with all these things. Be on our guard. That, that nothing about knowing the future, does he say you need to know exact details, exact timelines, exact events. But here's what he does say. Be prepared for them. I've told you in advance. Beware. Be on your guard. And so as Jesus' followers can bear the events around them with what Jesus has said to them, they can start to look and, and, and come to this realization like, wait a second, Jesus' words have been true. Look at what he said and look at what's happening around us. And what does that show his followers? Jesus is, is the prophet. So Jesus' words are, are true, and not just are his words true, but that he is trustworthy. And if he's trustworthy, if certain words are true and he's the trustworthy one, then all of a sudden all of his words, not just some of them, we can trust, we can depend upon, we can live by. We can rely on for all of our lives. In other words, Jesus' followers can take from this that Jesus can be taken at his word. They can be trusted. And we can have confidence in our Lord. And so there's much talk on the abomination of desolation and letting the reader understand and tribulations and the end. And what so often seems to happen is when we talk about all these things is that it seems to provoke in many fear or speculations, some sort of exact timelines. And yet what's so clear so far in Mark 13 is that Jesus' words are trying to establish faith, trust in not a timeline, but in Jesus himself, that his words can be trusted and that we can listen to him and obey him. Faith that's not in a timeline or signs or an event, but faith that's in Jesus himself and in his word. Faith that flees when Jesus says to flee and endures when he says to endure. Faith that's sure of his voice and won't listen to another. That's the faith that's being established so far in Mark 13. 
He's the good shepherd. He prepares his sheep. He gets them ready for what's at hand. He goes before them. He lays down his life even for them to make sure that they're cared for. He warns them. He gets them ready. The question for all of who hear this, whether you are the original audience or Mark's original audience or us today, is are we listening to his voice? Are we trusting in him as our shepherd? Is he leading us? Is his voice the one that reigns and rules in our life? If he's the one we're following, then yes, we need to beware, be on guard. But we do not need to fear. He's got us. Remember the imagery of John 10, that he's the one who goes before us, and he says that those who are in my hand, no one can snatch away. This is the one that can be trusted. And it's because of Jesus and what he has done that even in a world of brokenness with many tribulations, he says to his disciples, you know what you need to do? You need to have this table prepared where you guys come to often. This table, the Lord's table that we take the supper at, is a victory meal in the midst of brokenness and it seems like tribulations on end. Where we have this meal of victory in the midst of what seems like a loss. And why does he tell his people to do this? Because he told us beforehand that he was going to die. And because he told us beforehand that he was also going to be raised. And then he told us beforehand, you're going to need to take this meal until I come. Because there is an until. That I am going to come again and make sure that all my sheep are with me. And so church, here's what we get to do. Trust anew and afresh in Jesus. And if you do, you get to come to this table of victory set up in enemy territory in a sense. And you get to be reminded that we have victory not in an event, but in the personal work of Jesus. That we have confidence, not that we have everything figured out and that our timeline's exact and so we're for sure gonna be ready when the end comes, but that we know that Jesus has all things, that he is our Lord and we trust him. And so we do what he says now. And what he says, he says, you need to take this meal in remembrance of me. Look back to what I've done. Remember that, that's plain. Remember that you can have a part in my victory by faith in me and that you are looking forward to the day when I'm going to return because that day is an until. It's not a question mark. It's going to happen. So if that's you, if you're a believer, come and take this meal and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're not a believer, we'd say stop. Don't take this meal. It's okay to stay seated and instead to repent and believe in Jesus. Trust in him and in his word for eternal life. So let's bow in prayer together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know all things and that you have disclosed to us some of those things, Lord. And Lord, we know that what you haven't disclosed to us is for a good reason, because we know that your heart towards us is love and care and kindness. As a father to a child, Lord, help us to trust you, God. Help us to hear your voice and your voice alone. Help us to live in that tension, that healthy tension, really, between your sovereign will the shortening of days, and our responsibility to beware. God, we want to faithfully follow you. We want to obey those things that are clear 
And where those things, where things are not clear, God, we just pray for faith and for hearing and for guidance that you promise you'll give. Lord, this passage is difficult, and, and there are many, many voices, many opinions, many ways that the enemy can come and, and lead people astray. God, we just pray for your protection, for your wisdom, and how to navigate the waters that can be so rough at times if we allow ourselves to get sucked into them, Lord. We need your guidance, and as, as times intensify, Lord, as, as persecution ramps up, God, we just pray. Um, that your voice would stand out more and more clearly to us, God, that we in those mundane times would walk in obedience and listen to you in those, quote, small things of life, Father, that, that we would be conditioned and ready if we are alive when, when big things happen, that we would know that voice well. Lord, help us to honor you as we take this meal in, in remembrance of the fact that you will return. And we are excited about that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Quickly remind us that as we come, there's more in the middle section. You guys feel free to come to these other sections on the side to, to, to take as well. And just, just stick out your hand and they'll put the bread in your hand. So let's take now.
Just this has been satisfied.